Welcome back to Is It Horror? This is Season 3, Episode 1, Night of the Living Dead. I'm Brianna. I'm Joe. I'm Matt. I'm Mitz. And I am Steve. If you haven't joined us before, each episode we analyze a piece of media, usually a movie whose horror status is debatable, and we look at the creator's intent, audience reception, and the content of the media, all in an effort to better define the horror genre. If you agree with our take, that's awesome. If you don't, that's awesome too. Horror is a diverse genre, and all are welcome. We are going to be doing something a little bit different periodically throughout this season, which is we're going to have horror classics episodes, which this is the first of those. And the idea with that is we're going to take something that is universally considered horror, that's considered a classic within the genre, as the name says, and we're going to analyze a little bit of why that is and some of the things that it's established and some of the ways that it's affected the genre as a whole. And so hopefully that'll be fun to listen to and you can give us some feedback. Let us know how you think these types of episodes are and if you want to see more of them. Uh, before we get into Night of the Living Dead any further, though, we're going to go to Joe's Get to Know You Corner. Joe? All right. So, yeah, talking about Night of the Living Dead uh, got me thinking about, uh, you know, this is such a classic in general, but also such a classic in just uh, in the horror genre itself. Um, but it made me think about some of the kind of older movies that I like. And I was curious what everybody's what like what's your what's the oldest movie that's on your like personal list of favorites? It doesn't have to be horror or just just whatever. Um, I think the oldest one, and it happens to be horror, uh, is the like the very original Nosferatu, like the old, old, old black and white. I don't even know what year it was done. Maybe the twenties. I think that's probably the oldest one that I just. It's just beautiful to watch. Like I understand that it's you know a bazillion years ago, and cinematography is much different now. But it was just. It's so creepy. I don't know. It's so disturbing and just beautiful to watch. So I really appreciate it. One for me uh, is The Great Race. Uh, that came out in the 60s as well, um, as well as Night of the Living Dead. It came out in 65. Uh, but um, uh, it was always a kind of family favorite. We watched it like every time we went We went to my grandma's house. Uh, we, we like went there a few times every year and every time we watched this movie and it's, you know, old one with like Jack Lemon and Tony Curtis, Natalie Wood, Peter Falk. Um, that's a, one thing it was, it was, it blew my mind when I found out that Peter Falk or that, that Maximilian from the great race was the same guy who plays the grandpa in princess bride. Uh, so <laughs> I just watched Princess Bride yesterday <laughs> for like the nice. 80,000th time. Yeah, it was amazing, per usual. Yeah, I've watched that movie so much. It's such a good one. Um, but yeah, that's mine. Out of curiosity with him, because so he has a glass eye or had a glass eye. I think he's passed away, but had a glass eye. Is that something that was noticeable then? Because I don't know when the incident that took his eye happened or if he was born that way or whatnot. It's hard for me to say for sure, I don't know the, I don't know the specifics of it, but like in the, in the movie, at least I've, I've never noticed it, but it is an older movie. And like, I don't know, he's not like a main character. He's, you know, kind of a sub main character, but he doesn't get as much scream time as some of the others. So, uh, I don't know. I can't, I can neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> <laughs> Something I'll have to look up later, I guess. But now I'm curious. Yeah, sorry. 
so for me, definitely Night of the Living Dead is probably the oldest sort of black and white film from that I regularly watch. Uh, but I would say the oldest films that I am a big fan of would be like Christmas movies. So like the original Grinch movies from the 60s, the original Rudolph is from the 60s. So those are probably like my uh, classics from yesteryear that I always watch. I don't know about the oldest. I'm sure that there are some goodies that I'm forgetting that are older than these, but uh, my favorite movie from the 60s is The Sound of Music. I think that came out in 65. And I just love musicals anyway, so I love The Sound of Music. I used to watch it all the time as a kid. There's actually a home video of me and my siblings doing the dances from the movie. And... Then, of course, to jump on the Christmas bandwagon, uh, White Christmas. I just saw that one this year. I've never seen it before, or this past Christmas, um, and it's good. And it makes me want to be a beautiful 50s pinup girl. <laughs> oh, honey, you can totally live that dream. I support it. It just reminds me a little bit of when we were talking about Die Hard because White Christmas got brought up a little bit in that one. So anyway, yeah, if you want to check out our not-at-all-horror-related Is It Christmas episode on Die Hard for how that connects up with White Christmas, feel free to check that out. It's a fun episode. For me, I think the oldest movie that I watch with regularity, it would be this one if not for Psycho from 1960. That is one that I watch with regularity. There are other movies that I think... I'm not entirely sure when they are. Uh, Brigadoon, which is not horror at all. I do enjoy that one and have some nostalgia around that. Uh, I got talking with another podcaster recently about Darby O'Gill and the Little People, but I just don't remember exactly when those movies came out, and I can't say that I watch them regularly. They're just ones that I have some fond family memories of. Very cool. There's a lot of good old movies. I tend to like just not have them on my <laughs> on my radar at all but it's cool to hear what you guys like and i guess uh brianna you take the cake for oldest from the what, 20s was it that nosferatu was i think it was 1922 and you know what's really funny is i didn't even watch that movie like as a movie i actually watched that because there was a a video that i guess typo negative did with black number one and it was just the whole movie set to that song like it was an extended version i don't know that's how i first saw it and then i like went back and watched it and i was like this is really amazing <laughs> so give it a watch if you have a chance very cool <laughs> well thanks for joining me in the corner and now that we're out of the corner we'll head to the movie we're talking about which is night of the living dead from 1968 this year if you're listening to this upon release is the 55th anniversary of its release uh, it was directed and co-written by George A. Romero, who is best known for his Dead series, which include Night of the Living Dead, of course, and Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead, Land of the Dead, Survival of the Dead, and Diary of the Dead. I said those out of order. But other than those, of course, there's other classics like Martin, The Crazies, Creepshow, and uh, also just more recent news, although I'm not sure if there's going to be more headway by the time this actually releases, is that uh, Romero had been working on yet another entry in the Dead series called Twilight of the Dead. 
So he was working on that when he passed away in 2017, but now his estate is working to actively develop that as a film. So it's possible that there may, there may still be another Romero dead movie. Now, of course, under his direction, who knows how that'll end up being, but that's something that's on the radar, and I guess we'll see what happens with that. Uh, also, this movie was co-written by John A. Russo, uh, John A. Russo, aside from Night of the Living Dead, his big claim to fame would be that he wrote the novel Return of the Return of the Living Dead, which was supposed to be a sequel to Night of the Living Dead, and then that got adapted into a film which really bears no resemblance to his original book, which, sorry, John, is for the better, because the movie is awesome and the book is meh. But that being said, also as a fun bit of trivia, he went on to write a novelization of the movie. So there are two novels called Return of the Living Dead that are both written by John A. Russo, which I just find endlessly fascinating for some reason. And I uh, was recently able to get a copy of it. I was super excited about that. But if you want to hear more about Return of the Living Dead, I would direct you to my guest appearance on Sinful Sarah's Horror Menagerie episode 74. That's two plugs already in the beginning of this. I know, it's crazy. You're on fire! <laughs> and uh, also other things that he wrote notably would be Santa Claus, which I have not seen. It's a Christmas horror movie, so maybe we'll circle back to that come Christmas time. And then there is a Night of the Living Dead 30th Anniversary Edition, which is still the original film for the most part. But he filmed several new scenes that were supposed to function seamlessly within the film. Spoiler, they did not, but that is a thing that exists. Uh, and then that was supposed to serve as a new movie followed up by a new sequel in a series that he produced. And so the sequel follow-up movie to The Night of the Living Dead 30th Anniversary Edition is Children of the Living Dead. Uh, but the finished product, I don't know what he intended for this, but it bore no real resemblance to anything with Night of the Living Dead or any real real solid connection to it. It's just, it's bad, and he disavowed it. So anyway, that's not a thing you want to watch either. <laughs> but here's the back-of-the-box description for Night of the Living Dead, which is, The dead come back to life in this eerie, gruesome horror flick guaranteed to give you at least one bad night's sleep. Night of the Living Dead centers on a group of people taking shelter in an abandoned farmhouse to escape the clutches of a band of murderous zombies. This film is not for the squeamish. And so, spoiler warning from here on out, anything in Night of the Living Dead is fair game. We might talk a little bit about some of the other movies in the series as well. So normally, what we would do is we would talk about the horror credentials of this film. And so I wanted to go over that a little bit just because this is a horror classic and kind of give an idea of what it looks like when you have something that's just a straight up horror movie compared to what we're normally looking at. I would normally share a whole bunch of quotes from the cast and crew talking about this being a horror movie, but literally, if you have seen any interview with anybody who worked on this talking about it, they all acknowledge over and over and over again that it is horror, so I won't put a preponderance of quotes proving that, but I will read one quote from George Romero that was an AFI interview talking about his Dead series and their social satire, in which he said, People have written about these films and say, well, if you really look deep underneath, you'll find these things. And I don't think they're deep underneath at all. They're sort of right there in your face, right up front. But first and foremost, these are horror movies. 
they're thrillers. Horror fantasy has always been a way to, you know, get your views through. They're parables. So that's kind of his whole design aesthetic for the Dead series wrapped up in a single quote. So clearly seeing it as horror, but also seeing it as social satire and wanting to make sure that that's there, that it's a parable for, for things he was seeing. And uh, as far as meta tags go, it's easy to find streaming services that have Night of the Living Dead because it actually went into public domain as soon as it was released. And that was because there was an error in changing the title card for the film because originally it was going to be called The Night of Anubis. When they were filming it, they were calling it uh, Night of the Flesh Eaters or just Flesh Eaters, I believe. I might have gotten that a little bit in error. But in any case, they eventually changed the title to Night of the Living Dead, but they did not put the copyright mark on the new title card. So immediately in public domain. So all of that means if you have a streaming service, you can stream Night of the Living Dead. And so across 20 different services, 51% uh, of the labels that the movie received was horror. 15% uh, were classics, 15% were thriller, 6% uh, were fantasy and sci-fi as one category. 3% were fantasy, 3% were just sci-fi, 3% cult, 3% suspense, 3% independent. Uh, weirdly enough, the only place that you can't stream this movie is Netflix, and I don't know why the hell that is, because again, they could just throw it on there. And uh, oddly enough, there were only three platforms that didn't label this movie as horror, and that was Roku, which called it classics, fantasy, and suspense, Pluto TV, which just called it classics, and Google Play, which just called it independent. So there you go, is the overwhelming majority there calling it horror. And then the other thing that we usually talk about is the Google search trends for this and how oftentimes with a horror movie, you will get a bump in uh, searches in October, which can be an indicator that something is a horror movie, or at least that publicly it's perceived as a horror movie. And if you look at the Google search trends for Night of the Living Dead, it is the most textbook October bump you will ever see in a film. Gets a huge jump every October without fail. So I... We'll be shocked if we get other answers, but we're going to go ahead and ask the question just at least to start things out, which is, do you think Night of the Living Dead is a horror film? 100%, like five out of five brains. Yep, definitely horror. Uh, it's definitely horror, but I would be willing to throw in that there's like maybe a five to 10% sci-fi vibe on the last couple rewatches I really picked up on them doing a lot of sci-fi things that I will discuss. That is fair. Uh, I noticed the same thing with my rewatch, so I see you, sir. I'm going to say not horror. No, I'm just kidding. It's horror. <laughs> <laughs> You're killing me, Smalls. And of course, I'm going to say horror as well. So now we will actually take a brief interlude, and we're going to try something a little bit different, something we haven't tried in other seasons, which is including a little bit more of a game throughout so we're going to go to our first round of trivia. And whoever does the best at trivia at the end of this episode will have won absolutely nothing but my respect, which you currently none of you have. Rude. <laughs> I'm just kidding. You all have my respect. So what we'll do for the trivia round here is uh, we will we'll have three questions and we'll have four rounds of this throughout the episode, given that we have enough time. 
So the first round of Is It Horror Trivia. Who directed the 1990 remake of Night of the Living Dead? Was it A, John Russo, B, Dario Argento, C, Zack Snyder, or D, Tom Savini? I have no idea, but I'm fairly certain it was not Dario Argento or Zack Snyder. So that gives me a 50-50 shot to be wrong. I'm going to go with John Russo. I'm going to go with D. I'll say B. Okay, so it's D. Okay, yes. The answer was D, Tom Savini. Yes! <laughs> okay, and then the next one, there's no multiple choice on it. It's just name any rule for surviving zombie land. Any rule at all. Cardio. Double, Double tap. tap. Oh. <laughs> Limber up. Uh, it, well, I was trying to remember the exact wording of it, but it's um, a cherish or appreciate the small things, something like that. Yeah, you got it. And always check the back seat. <laughs> Everybody gets a point on that one. And wear your seatbelt, right? Yes, wear your seatbelt. All right, and this one is a little bit more video game focused, so we'll see how that goes. In the video game Resident Evil 2, uh, it introduced a zombie virus to the franchise. Which virus was that? Was it A, the T virus, B, the G virus, C, the progenitor virus, or D, Ouroboros? I still have never watched or played Resident Evil. Please don't hate me. I haven't either, but I believe it's A, the T virus. That I was going to be my wrong. guess. Right, I'm going to guess A. I'm with Mitz. We're standing solid on this one. <laughs> I'd say A as well. You'll never get your filthy hands on the G. It's the G virus. <gasps> Isn't there a T virus later? There is a T virus first. Okay. The T virus oh. is the one introduced in Resident Evil 2. The sequel wah, wah. always gets you. Man. So that completes our first round of zombie movie trivia here, and we'll come back to that in a moment. So one of the things I wanted to talk about is the influence of this movie, at least by the numbers. So for Night of the Living Dead, I was just going through, and this is the ones I can find, mind you, that there are at least 12 remakes of Night of the Living Dead. There are at least 32 films that purport to either be a direct sequel to Night of the Living Dead or a sequel of a sequel across various markets, as well as a TV series. There are... 27 films that just name check Night of the Living Dead by using Of the Living Dead or Of the Dead and uh, or Night of the whatever that may be, Night of the Comet, Night of the Creeps, things like that. So that puts the totals there at uh, remakes and sequels, 44 films and one TV series and name checks 28. And then at least across a list from Wikipedia of zombie movies, I could find 72 films, uh, or, or sorry, the total there is 72 direct references to this film one way or the other, whether it's a sequel or it's name checking it in some way. Uh, the other thing that I've found is that you have all zombie films that they have in the list of Wikipedia. I was going through and looking at that and you have about 41 films that involve zombies that existed before Night of the Living Dead. And when you look at the years that those were produced, you have a, basically a rate of 1.7 movies produced per year. Since Night of the Living Dead, there have been 572 zombie films. And 
with a rate generally of about 10 produced per year. And there is always a bump in movies that are produced after each Romero Dead Trilogy film came out. So Night of the Living Dead came out, and then there was a bump in movies that were being produced about zombies. Same with Dawn of the Dead in 78, same with Day of the Dead in 86. So after each one, you get kind of like a jump in production of zombie movies. And then as of 2002, when 28 Days Later came out, then you get kind of the fever pitch of zombie movies being produced. So again, just to kind of go over some of the things here with that, with the Wikipedia entry, there are some data problems with that that I will cop to right now is the list of zombie movies on Wikipedia is not every zombie movie that's been produced. It's certainly a lot of them. There's 614 on there, but obviously it's not going to capture everything. It also includes any movie that kind of has information about zombies. So some of those things make sense. Some of them don't make sense. But for instance, uh, you don't have Army of Thieves. Army of Thieves is listed on there because it has connection to Army of uh, Army of the Dead, even though there's not really a lot of zombie action in there. You get Pet Cemetery, even though it's arguable whether or not that is a zombie film or not. And uh, also there's always the debate to be had about whether or not other movies should be on there, like things like The Mummy or Phantasm that have things that are arguably zombies in them but aren't listed on there. So, But just to give an idea of how many more zombie movies have come about because of this film and how many are produced. So just some numbers there to, I guess, food for thought as far as the influence of this goes. And then I figured we'd do another round of trivia if everybody's ready. Ermagerd. Okay, I have my sweatband on. I am ready. What is regarded as the first zombie movie? A, Night of... Okay, hold on. (laughs) Oh, wait. No, wait. I might know this. I'm really excited. All right. Well, here are your options. A, Night of the Living Dead. B, The Plague of the Zombies. C, Plan 9 from Outer Space. Or D, White Zombie. D, White Zombie for the win. If I'm wrong, I'm going to feel like a total asshole. I'm so sure about this. I'm going to say D as well, uh, but mostly because like Steve and I were having a conversation about that the other night and I don't, but I don't remember if that was actually the first one or if it just came up in the conversation. So, but I'm going out on a limb. I'm pretty sure that's it too. I'm just going to ride my, the coattails of my peers and say that that's it. D final answer. You are all correct. Yay! Oh my god, my light just turned on. Guys, this place is haunted. I'm not (laughs) even fucking with you. This place is fucking haunted. Proceed. Sure. The ghosts just like our podcast. Maybe they are familiar with the film and they're like, yes, that was correct, dumbasses. They're happy. They watched it when it first came out. Yay! Alright, next question. What is regarded as the most expensive zombie movie ever made at an estimated budget of $190 million? Is it A, World War Z, B, Resident Evil Retribution, C, Army of the Dead, or D, Dawn of the Dead from 1978? I'm gonna go with A. I'm probably wrong. I am gonna go with B. I have no reason. I'm pretty sure it's A because they probably spent more on like just one pile of CGI zombie ants than all of Resident or Dawn of the Dead 78. <laughs> and they had to pay for Brad Pitt. 
Yeah, Brad Pitt's salary is probably worth more than Dawn of the Dead 1978. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'll say that too. Uh, I don't know, except for my gut is saying Army of the Dead for some reason. That was my second guess. Maybe I'll, I'll say Army of the Dead. The answer was World War Z. Dang it, gut. <laughs> Foiled again. <laughs> All right. And then our final question for this trivia round. What zombie movie first introduced brain-eating zombies? Is it A, Night of the Comet, B, Night of the Creeps, C, Return of the Living Dead, or D, Children Shouldn't Play with Dead Things? Well, I have to watch D at some point in time, but I digress. I'm going to go with A, Night of the Comet. Uh, I, I haven't seen several of these, so I don't remember. I don't know the kind of order they came out of, but I feel like it was Return of the Living Dead that at least made it popular. Uh, and I'll say Return of the Living Dead. I'm going to join Joe on this one. I haven't seen any of them either, but I think that that sounds right. <laughs> My guess is Return of the Living Dead. It is Return of the Living Dead. And not to disparage anyone's favorite zombie movie out there, if there's anyone that feels this way, but I I don't know if you do need to watch Children Shouldn't Play with Dead Things, Brianna. I did not care for that one. Are you sure? It's not like one of those archive things where it's like educational in terms of horror filmage, no? No saving graces at all? Nothing? I didn't like it, but I watched it about 20-some years ago, so I might feel different about it if I watched it today. But I'll, I'll tell you, I wasn't a big fan of it, um, and I'm not sure exactly where it stands as far as historical significance. So maybe I'll have to give it another chance and tell you if I feel different. But I remember not liking the characters at all. Oh, no. Well, I might have to watch it just to make fun of it then. That's always a good time. If you do, you'll have to let me know what you think. <laughs> All right. We're going to talk a little bit about some of the horror tropes that are established by Night of the Living Dead. And I kind of just wanted to give an idea here because tropes aren't necessarily something that we've ended up talking a lot about on this show. We've kind of mentioned how they can signal to an audience that something is horror. Um, I stole the... Uh, definition for it just so I could kind of give a sense of it is from the art direction handbook for film and I shamelessly stole that from the Wikipedia entry which they define it as universally identified image imbued with several layers of contextual meaning creating a new visual metaphor and then I myself wrote my own little TED talk thing that I'm going to put on there just as an added bit of it is uh, which is the idea that genres don't exist in a vacuum and people experience art then genre classification tends to occur through some degree of common consent within society. So in other words, we decide as a society what we think is horror or any other genre for that matter. Things that commonly happen in art that we've decided is horror become the tropes of the horror genre. So when these horror genre tropes later occur in new material, it signals to the audience that consciously or unconsciously the creators intend for their art to exist within the horror genre. And new pieces of art get accepted into the horror genre, bringing with them new horror tropes, which are then followed by new art using the new trope to identify themselves as horror, and the cycle kind of goes on and on, if that hopefully makes sense. So this doesn't mean that every film that uses a horror trope is horror, or that horror tropes 
have to be created in a horror film, just that it's a shorthand of communication that can help to identify the genre. And that's kind of just how I see it. So there's my take on the whole thing and why it's a value at least to discuss, to think about. So I wanted to see what everyone else's take was on that was mostly, like we said, it's been brought up in passing in previous episodes. Uh, We've talked about a little bit head on sometimes, but how important do you think tropes are in your classification of the horror genre? For me, I think they're pretty important. I don't think that the trope necessarily defines a film as horror, but I do kind of look for those, I don't know, visual buzzwords throughout the whole film. You know, I look for the mirror tricks. I look for the, you know, the weapon through the door next to someone's face trick. Like there's just certain things that I, I kind of look forward to. So to me, that is important. Yeah, I think it, I don't know. I like, like was kind of already said, I guess it seems like a good like shorthand to cue the audience that it is horror. Uh, I guess for me specifically, I don't, I don't need them. Like I, well, I don't know. Maybe that's not totally true if I'm being honest with myself. But I I feel like they're not always what I'm looking for or um, or think like it doesn't always play into whether I think it's horror or not. It's it usually is end up ending up being like how it makes me feel. Um, and like I don't need a jump scare necessarily. Uh, but uh, but yeah, I still think they're important. So. I have thought a little bit about this subject, um, especially in terms of like the new Halloween uh, trilogy that came out and how uh, spoilers for that. It, it feels like the third movie in particular is trying really hard to do something unique and interesting. And in a way, they sort of ignored a lot of the tropes that make a Halloween movie what I'm looking for in a Halloween movie. So if you ask me on the surface, do I think tropes are important to establish or play with within a movie? I would say that I don't necessarily think that they are, but subconsciously, like with that film, like with Halloween... I wanted it to be more of a Halloween film than it ended up being. I wanted it to follow some of those tropes. Uh, So I think kind of going back to your statement, it is sort of like a societal, maybe subconscious thing that, that really does play into what we like and don't like because it it's, we like to get what we're expecting, I think. And we like to be surprised a little and we hate being disappointed. So <laughs> movies kind of need to offer a balance of those three things. Yeah, I'll just echo what everyone has said. I, I don't think they're necessary, but I do think that they definitely play a role in defining a horror movie. I mean, there's like the old adage of if it looks like a duck, walks like a duck, and sounds like a duck, it's probably a duck. And I think... That applies to the horror movies. I think that when we see those tropes, it helps our brains categorize the movies. So I think, yeah, definitely, definitely tropes are important to categorizing a a movie as horror. I think it's interesting, too, when you do see something that is really doing something that feels more unique within the horror genre so it's not relying on any real tropes that you're used to and kind of feels like it's doing its own thing. And maybe it's me being a little less versed in cinema as I should be, but I look at it, an example of that would be The Lighthouse, where I think we mostly 
all agreed that it was horror, but that it also doesn't really do a lot of what horror movies do. And so you do have examples, obviously, where something can be horror without relying on tried and true horror tropes. And you do have times where the tropes are so overused that it makes the movie not fun to watch. But I do think, as described there, yeah, a trope isn't necessarily a good or bad thing. It's just a way of communicating information to the audience. And when employed right, then it can be a really useful tool to give a shorthand for what you're trying to get at. And when used poorly, it can just make a movie unbearable. But I do think it's 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 useful, at least in having that shared language to help us see part of what the creator's intent is. Um, do you have any favorite horror tropes, things that you enjoy seeing, or do you have any that you hate seeing and you hope you never see again? Oh, I have lots to say about this. Shock surprise. I love some of my favorite things are like when a horror movie has a twist ending. Um, also, I'm really kind of a sucker for any kind of jump scare. I'll be totally honest. But where my deal really is at with horror things is I'm I love the haunted structure thing, like the cursed structure thing. Like, I don't care if it's a haunted home. I don't care if it's an asylum or a hospital. Like, I just love that. Like, ooh, there's a creepy, ooky backstory to this and everybody's going to die. It's just it's always a good time. So are the research montages where like someone's at the local library finding deeds to the home and like newspaper clippings and stuff. And it's just like this whole research archivist montage. Love that. Yeah, you get like the Scooby gang from. Uh, yeah. From yeah, Buffy. Yes, exactly. That's really where it's at. And I think like some of my least favorite things, like things I can do without and movies that I tend to avoid, like pretty much anything that's basically just torture porn and like features sexual assault and animal abuse as like part of the horror genre like to me that just that grosses me right out uh for me let's see favorites i i don't know um i guess one of the tropes that i always look for i don't know if i'd say it's a favorite but it's one of the things that cues me into it being horror more than anything else is like i i still struggle a little bit with how to describe it but it's like the hope drop or the, you know, just that moment when in a movie that's just like, oh, okay, well, everything's terrible and, you know, our our hero's not going to make it out or whatever. Um, but that's one of the biggest tropes for me that, um, that cue horror for me. And I guess to uh, be a contrarian, I, I don't, I don't know, the, the twist ending trope, it can be done well. And like, there are definitely films that I like it done in, but I feel like for me, it kind of ends up bothering me more often than not because I feel like with a lot of movies, they're just throwing it in for what, just to throw it in. Just be like, oh, we got a twist. We got to, you know, twist the knife at the end uh, just because. Like, I mean, they could tell a perf- perfectly great story, but then they, I don't, I, don't oft, I don't always see the point of that or why they need to add that. Uh, so for me, the ones that I know the best are zombie movies, and I would always, I'll always say that if a zombie story goes on long enough, there is most certainly going to be some sort of uh, militia or paramilitary group that needs, that is either trying to cannibalize other people or just enslave and have sex with every woman that they find, and I always feel like. I want to see something else happen in a zombie film. Like, 
because that just seems to happen in every single one that ever exists and maybe that is what would really happen if zombies exist but i just want a little bit more creativity in my zombie stories i think yeah it's kind of interesting you mentioned that too because i was thinking about romero's films i've watched all of them recently but they don't really end up doing that in any of them i guess day comes the closest but as far as the the whole sexual assault side of things they never descend into that so it's like it seems like george mostly avoided that with his movies yeah i would agree with that he he doesn't he kind of skirts the line of having you know military groups that are kind of like marauders and that sort of thing or but he doesn't really go into the like ones that are just capturing people for sex or capturing people to eat or things like that so you are right about that and it's funny that that is such an established trope of the zombie zombie genre when the king of zombies himself didn't really do that maybe it's a lesson for everyone else to learn word Uh, My favorite trope, like a trope that I actually really enjoy, is the, like, and this is a trope I enjoy in all genres, um, not just horror, is, like, when the what the characters in the movie, like, form a party, basically. This is my D&D love coming out. Um, I, like, even in Night of the Living Dead... They they all showed up at this house. Now we're in a fu- we're in a par- fighting party. We're all have bring our own strengths and personalities, and that's affecting the way that we deal with this crisis. You know, tensions are rising. People are, you know, there's there's conflicts happening. People are forming bonds with each other. That's my f- absolute favorite trope in all genres but in the horror movie especially because the stakes are higher so it's interesting to see how personalities clash and also help each other i do like seeing that too actually i'll tell you the one that i could do without as far as horror tropes go because there's two outcomes for it and both have been done to death and i don't get anything out of either is anytime a character walks to a place and the camera comes in tight And then they open a door and they get whatever they need out and then they close the door and then there either is something there or there isn't something there, but they want you to wonder if something's there. And I'm just over it. I'm very over it. You know what's also a dead giveaway of a horror movie? And this is mostly slashers, but it's when like the first five movies is spent like exposing characters that immediately die in the first five minutes. Like, I got attached to this cute couple, and now they're dead. That's how I know it's a horror movie. They're not the main character. Psych. Yeah, the immediate intro kill. I have one other trope that, like, just while thinking about while you guys were talking, that I don't care for very much. And Night of the Living Dead, I think we'll probably talk about this, but Night of the Living Dead maybe was an early inspiration for this but you seem to always have one of the at least like one person in your party that's going to be an idiot and it's going to be a jerk and that's going to mess everything up that's going to get bitten and not tell you and like i don't know you had harry in this one and um i don't know i i don't like that 
very much because a lot of times I don't know maybe it's true to life and maybe I should. I think it's super it. true to life. <laughs> you yeah. know that there's gonna be some asshole on my zombie apocalypse team who is just gonna screw it all to hell. <laughs> yeah, and that's fair. And maybe I sh- it shouldn't bother me as much as it does for that reason because it is it is probably true to life, but it still bothers me. Yeah, it's like every group project you ever had in school prepares you for that eventuality. <laughs> Essentially, yeah. yeah. Public ed man prepared us for the zombie apocalypse. Who knew? I definitely, like, uh, Harry's wife deserved a lot better. She needed to get out of I that agree. relationship. Harry's wife needed to, like, let her hair down a little bit. She really <laughs> did. A bunch. Like, step out of those sensible shoes, girl. Go put on those cha-cha heels. She is definitely a vibrant woman who was crushed under a very Napoleonic man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, and she knew exactly what she was. She knew exactly what he was. That's, I don't know, that's the thing that's so frustrating about it. All right, well, we're going to head to trivia round three, and then we're going to dig deep into the Night of the Living Dead trope. So everybody around you ready for trivia round three? I'm Yar. ready and I'm rowdy. Good. All right. What Richard Matheson novel has George Romero cited as as being inspiration for Night of the Living Dead? Is it A, I Am Legend, B, A Stir of Echoes, C, Hell House, or D, Hunger and Thirst? I think it's I Am Legend. I'm going with that. I certainly lean towards that because that's the one I know of the most. Uh, And I guess I better just stick with it because I after myself last time. <laughs> I think it's I Am Legend also. I absolutely have no idea about any of these questions, but I'm going to be uh, an outlier and say that it is Beast, Stir of Echoes. And it was I Am Legend, not Stir of Echoes. Sad times. I tried my best. I appreciate that. This next question is a chance to potentially win two points because we'll, we'll run it that way. So aside from his six zombie films, George Romero wrote two different zombie comics. And if you can name both, you get two points. If you name just one, you get one point and that's fine. So our options are A, The Walking Dead, B, Toe Tags, C, Revival, D, Empire of the Dead, E, I, Zombie, 4, or F, sorry, Remains, (laughs) and G, Night of the Living Dead, colon, The Beginning. So if you can name, yeah, up to two points. I have no idea, but if there's a comic series called Toe Tags, I kind of want to read that. Um, uh, I, Zombie, and Night of the Living Dead, The Beginning. I have no idea. Um... I guess logic tells me Empire of the Dead and Night of the Living Dead, the beginning. Uh, but I'm, I feel like that's, it's going to be a mislead. Um, but I'll just stick with that. I think what Joe said is right, those two, I think. I am going to say the answers are C, Revival, and F, Remains, because they sound like they would go good together in a series. So the actual answers were B, Toe Tags, and D, Empire of the Dead. Damn it! <laughs> What's Toe Tags? 
I really was thinking about saying toe tags because it sounded slightly familiar to me. So it's a uh, six-issue miniseries. I think it was six issues. might have been four that he did for DC Comics, and it involved a increasingly intelligent subset of zombies that were at war with the living, and the lead zombie like rode an elephant around. It was kind of crazy. Uh, it was it was a weird one. All right, and the final question that's a little bit more fair if you've watched The Night of the Living Dead recently is, uh, in The Night of the Living Dead, what is the name of the restaurant that Ben mentions in his monologue to Barbara? Is it A, Beekman's Diner, B, Rhodes Shake Shack, C, Evans City Diner, or D, Box Family Restaurant? I do not remember, but Rhodes Shake Shack has a nice ring to it. B. Uh, I'm going with Beekman's Diner. Uh, it's definitely Beekman's Diner, I think, but I also want to just give you props for the other uh, options that you gave because those were funny. <laughs> I don't know. I'm going to say Evans City Diner. And this question actually makes me mad at myself because during this scene, I was literally fixated on Barbara like cause she was having her little mental breakdown. And I was even thinking to myself, I wonder if he's saying anything important because I'm totally not listening to what he's saying right now. <laughs> and and uh, here it yeah. is. It's on the test. <laughs> here it is. But I say Evan City Diner. Okay. So it was actually Beekman's Diner. And the other ones I was trying to come up with plausible sounding references because Rhodes Shake Shack is named after Captain Rhodes in... Day of the Dead. Box Family Restaurant is named after the Box Arco Pitcarian shirt worn by the zombie in Dawn of the Dead. And Evans City Diner is named for Evans City, which is where the cemetery scene takes place in Dawn of the Dead, where that was filmed. Not Dawn of the Dead, Night of the Living Dead. I got super referencing. For how many times I've gone to Pittsburgh with Mitts, I've never taken her to any of these places or any of the sites, so I should do that sometime. All right. So I guess I wanted to start off by just seeing, first off, what was everybody's relationship to Night of the Living Dead? Uh, how were you introduced to that? Is this your first time watching it? How's that go? I feel like I say this a lot on this podcast, but it is Steve's fault that I saw this movie for the first time. And I don't know that I appreciated it as much at the time. Um, it was just kind of a kitschy throwback kind of romp at the time. But now I'm taking a look at it and I appreciate it far more for like the filmmaking breakthroughs that it made. And like, you know, I feel like this was one of the first really big, I don't, are we calling it like a modern zombie film? I don't know. It's um, It was all Steve's fault. That's the moral of the story. <laughs> I have a similar tale to tell. I uh, I am I don't remember specifically the first time I saw it, but I am certain that it was with Steve. Yeah, I'm relatively certain I saw it when I was probably way too young to see it with <laughs> Steve. <laughs> this was my first time watching it. Yay, so everyone watched it because of me. Yay. Uh, for my watching it, I think that I actually saw Dawn of the Dead first. I had a mutual friend, Brianna, and I had a mutual friend, Will Parker, that introduced 
me to Dawn of the Dead. And then I was kind of obsessed with it. And then I came back around to Night of the Living Dead. And I think the first time I saw it is there was a popular colorized version of it that went around. So I actually saw that version of it first before seeing the black and white version. Um, it's an interesting oddity, but the black and white's definitely better because it was a, it was a colorized one. So it's not like they filmed it in color or anything. It was filmed in black and white. So I don't know. It's an interesting oddity that exists. Uh, so I wanted to talk about the tropes that Night of the Living Dead inspired and started in that film. And I wanted to talk about it basically in two categories. So the first thing we'll talk about are the rules for zombies that exist within the film. And the next is we will talk about the tropes for the zombie subgenre as a whole. So just to kind of give an idea, like a trope for the zombie rules would be the idea that they have to be shot in the head, whereas a trope of the zombie genre would be to have like a siege situation where you're trapped and they're all around you. So it's okay if we don't nail that entirely, but just kind of that's how I want to break it up. And the reason why we want to talk about the new rules for zombies in this is because previous to Night of the Living Dead, zombies existed. And we talked about the first zombie movie was White Zombie in 1932. Night of the Living Dead didn't come out until 68. The type of zombie that existed previously were voodoo zombies. And so the idea with those is that uh, zombies, they had no will of their own. They're basically just these empty vessels that are controlled by a master often time for slave labor, or maybe just as kind of silent minions. That's how they were portrayed in White Zombie. And uh, there's usually a connection to the Caribbean islands, particularly Haiti. So that's the kind of zombie that people were used to. So looking at Night of the Living Dead, as far as zombie rules go, what are some of the tropes that you noticed that are established for the first time here in this film? Well, I already mentioned the whole shooting them in the head thing. That's something I noticed. Does that count as a zombie rule or is that a trope? Uh, well, in this sense, I'm saying that the trope is that that's the rule. Okay. Um. So, well, so I noticed that, but also, of course, the zombies, the dead will feast on the living. I don't know if this one was necessarily all about the brains. They were just kind of like nom nom human flesh. Fine. Um, and also that you can be turned by a zombie if you are bitten by them. Another thing I think this really establishes is that they are, in fact, dead and they are all messed up. Yes, absolutely. I believe this probably introduced the whole, like, infection. Like, it always comes from some sorts of infection, virus. In this case, it was radiation. Something is causing this zombieism to spread a source that's the word i was looking for yeah just the whole idea that uh if you get bitten by a zombie then you're going to turn into a zombie and that i think in this one i think it's interesting too because it's kind of subtle and it's definitely arguable but the whole concept that no matter how you die you will come back whether you were bitten or not certainly a bite will turn you but dying at all will also ensure that you come back as a zombie. Yeah, the we are all infected kind of uh, trope, I feel is one that gets played with a little bit more in zombie movies. But uh, yeah, I think that's definitely a, a big establishing one that they created there. Also, someone getting bitten from within the party. 
or someone showing up with a bite. In this case, the little girl. Oh, the little girl was badass. Like that was that was truly a little disturbing when you put it in the frame of context of when this was made. Like the little girl eating her dad. That was awesome. Yeah, that was something that you're like, oh, thank goodness he's dead. <laughs> Although it's funny because it didn't actually establish. The, I feel like the normal trope is that someone shows a bitten. Or they discover that they're bitten and then they have to make the decision to like let them stay or kick them out or kill them. But in this case, she gave them a total jump scare. They had no idea. It's true. That's definitely one that I noticed that's not established here either, right? Like when you think of a zombie movie, you always think of that person that's that's one that's uh, everyone knows they're bitten and they have to decide what to do with them. And there's always that person that gets bitten that's hiding their bite and uh, you don't have either of those things happening here, which it makes sense because this is when the concept's being first introduced. And even if it wasn't, this is the first night of it and none of these people know anything about it previously. But yeah, those are two tried and true zombie tropes that you don't see in this film. Well, it's interesting too, because like if this is maybe one of the first zombie movies that like, I mean, I guess at least as an audience, you can kind of think, watch it and see like, they're dealing with zombies for the first time. You know, in this day and age, we all know, like, if you get bitten by a zombie, then then you're done for, or you're going to turn into a zombie, yada, yada, yada. But in this film, like, they're very open about it. Yeah, the little girl got bit. I don't know what, that, that was crazy. And, like, you can at least imagine the audience at the time not even, like, maybe necessarily thinking about, like, she's going to turn or anything like that. Like, she's just hurt. Like, I don't know. It's kind of interesting. Because at that point, at least as far as the information that the movie's giving you, it's not really clear where these people are, where they're coming from. You can tell that they're they're different and something's happening. But yeah, so you wouldn't necessarily have any reason. I mean, it does give you kind of like a cue in that Ben seems the most savvy and he seems worried about the idea. But, you know, just in the normal way that any of us would, which is like, hey, someone bit you and you don't know who. What about infection? One thing I always wonder about is just like, uh, and it doesn't really end up mattering, but like, does the bite turn you or is, does it just kill you? And then, you know, when you're dead, then you turn. So I don't know. It's just an interesting thought, I guess. I guess the way that I look at it, I think coincides with the way that Robert Kirkman interpreted it for The Walking Dead, which more or less follows Romero rules, which is just one more legacy idea of how this affected things, is the idea that anyone who dies will come back as a zombie. That's a guarantee. And a bite will kill you. But that's basically what it comes into play, is that the bite will kill you faster um but it's not necessarily that the bite is the thing making you a zombie since that would have happened anyway i guess that's kind of how i view it but uh you know every universe is a little different every piece of media is a little bit different but at least within the romero universe i feel like that kind of holds true is like yeah a bite will kill you faster but death will turn you anyway no matter how you died something that i don't that I'm trying to think if it really gets established. Maybe it is established a little bit later. Oh, it's definitely established in Day of the Dead. But um, 
the idea that if you are bit by a zombie, that if you quickly sever the limb, you can survive the bite kind of a thing. So something that we don't necessarily see here, but is a zombie trope that comes up later in the dead movies. It's true. I. It's funny because in that one with Day of the Dead, you're, you don't really get to see months, weeks, years later that that for sure worked because it's so close in the timeline. Like he seems okay but maybe he would have been okay that long because roger was okay for a few days right so i don't know it's it's definitely it seems like it's there and it's establishing that yeah you could if somebody argued with me that day of the dead he was still going to die from it i don't think i could argue against it but i think it's at least the first hinting at there of that kind of idea and for sure, Robert Kirkman has seen those movies, so he must have been thinking about that and asking those questions as well. I think the other thing that this one establishes that's a zombie trope is that zombies are slow moving. And uh, that was so well established for so long that a lot of people had a hard time when they started running into, no pun intended, running zombies later. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the biggest debate in the whole zombie genre is fast zombies versus slow zombies and the so-called Romero purists who don't like the fast zombies. All right, well, let's take a look at the other side of zombie fiction. What are some of the zombie rule tropes that were absent from Night of the Living Dead, ones that you feel were established by other films later? We already talked about... Oh, shoot, we already talked about one of them. But anyway, yeah, continue. I feel like uh, the whole waking up in a hospital kind of a thing has become a big zombie trend of late. I know they definitely do it in The Walking Dead and 28 Days Later. And then, as I had talked about before, the whole, like, uh, military trying to repopulate the Earth by capturing women and or uh, a group who just becomes cannibals, those kind of things. I think the only thing that I really noticed was the whole, like, eating brains things. Like, I definitely associate a zombie movie with mer brains so that was really the only one that stuck out for me but i really need to kind of up my game on my zombie movie intake this has shown me that i think the one that we already kind of talked about was just the like somebody hiding a bite and that kind of thing uh one that i don't think that we've talked about as much is the idea that uh, throughout the Dead series, it's kind of ambiguous as to what the exact cause of the zombie infection was. They do go into the idea that it was this uh, satellite from Venus, probe from Venus, r- radiation from it, uh, but that's never really established. I think a lot of other more modern zombie stories like 28 Days Later or The Last of Us or things like that Uh, go very in-depth as to what the cause is and have characters focusing on potentially finding a cure. Uh, So that's something that I feel like George never really talked about. Like, he talked about it probably the most in Night of the Living Dead, and then really... I mean, in Day of the Dead, they talk about trying to find a cure, but there's nothing really that ever comes from that at all, you know? Yeah, I do think that that's interesting, because if this was the only zombie movie that you saw, then you'd, of course, you would think it's space radiation. That's it. That's the end of it. 
But then when you look at all of Romero's movies and say like, okay, there's six of these films and that's the only one that really deals with that idea, at least that I can remember, and the rest just kind of leave it off the table. And there's definitely a lot of movies that have followed suit. But yeah, um, the whole explaining it in great detail trope of some zombie films is definitely something that came with other movies later. I think that that's a trope that, well, so the idea of the like the Venus probe and that kind of thing is maybe a trope. I don't know if I would say it established it, but it's like just the whole like man went where it wasn't supposed to do go and um, now they're paying the price for it. Um uh, and I don't know that that's a zombie trope, but it seems like a horror trope often. Yeah, that whole man's hubris thing, and we're paying for it. Right, yeah. I'm trying to think of other like tropes that it doesn't have, and I'm thinking of ones, other ones that it does have. Because <laughs> like, the other one is, like, I feel like a trope is um, you kind of get like a newscaster kind of explaining the situation. Um in, in zombie films, that seems like that happens a lot. Yeah, definitely. I think that happens a lot. Another one as far as is re- zombies remembering the past, which kind of goes hand in hand with the friendly zombie idea. I don't think that you get anything like that here, right? Because you have Johnny from, at least in terms of what's presented in the film, seems like he's just taking Barbara to eat her and then You've got the the little girl there who's more than happy to kill her dad, although maybe that's because she does remember. But uh, she also kills her mom, which case I feel like probably she doesn't remember. I guess kind of the last thing was just the idea of did you notice anything presented in terms of the way that zombies function in this that didn't really seem to carry over to any other movies where this is really the only one that you feel like you saw that? Uh, I was going to say fire. The idea that they're afraid of fire, uh, I think that kind of... I can't remember exactly in later Romero films, but I feel like there's plenty of other times where they just walk through fire and just get set on fire and don't give a crap. And it's almost even further, like, it is fire, but it also seems to be light, too, because, like, you know, Ben gets in and, like, he kind of sees them breaking the headlights on the truck and, like, you know maybe pun intended, the light clicks on in his head and he's like, all right, turn all the lights on in the house. And he, you know, (laughs) lights the sofa and throws it out there. So it seems to be more than even just fire in this one. That seems like a very Frankenstein monster thing, doesn't it? Like maybe that's where that came from. Yeah, I I think that there is something to that. I mean, because that would have been the types of monster movies that he was growing up with, right? Yeah. And it also lends to the more like, hmm, is this sci-fi kind of vibe. It's true. And, and the thing is, too, with the fire idea and the light idea in general, I feel like the light idea definitely gets abandoned in Dawn of the Dead because most of that, not most of it, but there's a fair amount of zombies that take place during the day and certainly in the very well-lit mall, and they don't seem to have an issue with it. They do briefly use torches to try and dissuade the zombies, but it's like, during the mall clearing scene and kind of only that. And I feel like it doesn't really come up in the series later that I can remember. Yeah, I guess they definitely are afraid of the torch that uh, they use. Like they, they don't, they use the torch to kind of ward them off in Dawn of the Dead. 
a little bit. But yeah, I had never really, I kind of had never picked up on the idea that they were cracking the headlights of that car because they didn't like light and that they turned the lights on in the house. Because so many times I've watched Night of the Living Dead and thought, wouldn't the lights be attracting the zombies? But yeah, like that's a good point. They are establishing that they just don't like light either. Which I always think it's a little bit silly to kind of get into the biology of something that's been dead and brought back to life a little bit, just because, I don't know, it could work any way you want to think of. But I guess it kind of makes a little bit of sense if you want to go with the idea of, like, if you're dead and come back and your eyes don't work so well, maybe a lot of light basically blinds you. And I could see that functioning. I know that they use the light idea and whether or not they can see well to great effect later in Train to Busan. So it's not like them being afraid of the light. It's just they don't see very well at all because of dying and coming back or at least whatever the virus is. I can't remember if they're undead in that movie or not, unfortunately. Someone will have to correct me. But in any case, they have the whole idea in that one that uh, when there's no light, they won't attack because they can't see you and figure out where you are. Okay, so straying a little bit from just the rules of the zombie in general, what other tropes did you notice as far as just zombie movie tropes? So we did mention the newscast one. I think that's a good one. That does happen a lot in zombie movies. So yeah, what other tropes of zombie movies that don't necessarily affect how zombies function did you notice being established in this film? I don't know if it counts, but the whole it can be solved with a, a gun and a strap full of ammunition and some good old fashioned firepower. Like, I feel like that's something that always happens. Like, eh, just shoot it. I think maybe the just the idea that there's always a kind of group of rednecks that are out there all with their 22s, kind of like Brianna was saying, and uh, just just sort of handling the problem and seemingly not uh not bothered by it it's just like a a saturday out kind of a thing yeah and i think that this one kind of establishes just along with that idea that people are usually the thing to be more afraid of than the zombies both in terms of the internal group there and in terms of the you know the posse that's coming through clearing them out yeah because you always get the people who are like excited about it because they get to shoot people basically which those are the people you should be worried about. <laughs> I think this film does a lot uh, as far as like establishing gender roles in horror and also roles for people of color. I was talking to Mitz about how it's interesting that for the time uh, that Ben is the lead actor and he's a person of color and then, uh, but the women in the film are still kind of these meek submissive or hysterical kind of figures that seem to be more in the way at least as far as the film is portraying them so uh, i think that's something that changes and obviously if you watch like the 1990 remake of night of the living dead they try to go real hard in the opposite direction uh for the female roles at least but um yeah so i think that's that's something that sort of was established and now we're getting more representation for women but it, but it is interesting because you see even the black man has that lead role and then still the women are playing subordinate roles in the film 
Yeah, I think that's interesting. And then the other thing I think is kind of interesting about this too is my whole introduction into horror really was from Dawn of the Dead and then going to Night of the Living Dead and then of course went on to Day of the Dead. So the three big horror films that I grew up with completely bucked the trend that people often bring up with horror or at least the trope that's often brought up with brought up with horror is the idea that the black character dies first. And I was sitting there looking at the movies I'd seen and be like, they don't die first, they die last, if at all. Which is kind of a funny thing for me to like have that lesson from it, which is completely different from what everyone else is seeing in horror. And it's one of those things that I just, I'm disappointed to see didn't really catch on as a trope here. And then you've got, you know, other horror movies like The Blackening really playing on that idea. But it's nice looking at the Romero films and seeing that they were progressive in letting black characters evolve and actually be fleshed out and survive through the whole film, even if in this one they die at the end. The other thing I couldn't decide if this movie establishes or not, and I wanted to see how you guys feel about it, does it establish the idea of the zombie apocalypse, or is it too localized in this film to really feel like that is a thing being established here? I think it was too localized because the movie kind of ends with you assuming that, like, you know, the authorities have this situation under control. Yeah, even in Dawn of the Dead, uh, it seems just kind of like this, like, it's getting worse in Dawn of the Dead, but it still doesn't feel like a like an apocalypse film um, where Day of the Dead really does. But yeah, so... I don't think it really starts to feel like that apocalypse genre until day. It's hard for me, like looking back, looking backwards, like I would think of night of the living dead as an apocalypse movie, but, but yeah, really everything we're giving given in the actual movie itself doesn't really say that or establish that. I don't think. Like, they try to establish somewhat of scale through the news reporting, but because we're just following so closely with these people, and because despite how horrible the ending is to see Ben survive the whole night only be shot by this posse, and of course the questions there regarding whether or not they would have done it if he had been a white character, but in terms of at least, it's like they have it all wrapped up, like they more or less have the situation solved at the end of the night, you know? Yeah, they're just going around mopping things up and probably it's all taken care of, or at least that's what we're meant to think. But I guess Dawn of the Dead has that too, kind of where you see those posses, but like you're only getting the like a glimpse of of that and it's in like more rural areas. So like you can kind of like extrapolate that like even in Night of the Living Dead, like in cities and things like that, it's, it is going badly and there is like actual apocalypse level stuff happening. Um, but it doesn't ever like specifically give us that. And it is interesting. I know we brought it up before too, but the idea that this establishes the newscasting to kind of give an idea of the scope of things and that Dawn expands on that by having two of its characters two of its four main characters be involved in the media and then showing the broadcast slowly run out over time so it's kind of at least just it's interesting to see that established here which i guess i kind of forgot a little like i knew that the reporting was in there but i forgot how how well it was used to that degree and then how much of an influence that it had 
on the next installment. All right, let's go ahead and do the final round of trivia, and then we'll declare a winner. First one's pretty easy point to score. Name a zombie rom-com that isn't Shaun of the Dead. Oh, Warm Bodies. Very good. I was going to say that. Uh, does Pride and Prejudice and Zombies count? Absolutely. Oh I love gosh. that one, too. <laughs> I'll allow it. It's classic. Would you count Fido as a rom-com? No, I was going to say Fido! <laughs> <laughs> also, yes. I will allow it. I was going to say Fido. Dang you. Uh, I think there was a romance in Zombieland, wasn't there? Was there a romance at the end? Sort of. I don't know if they made it official. I'm going to give you the point. Okay. It was Tallahassee and Twinkies. That was the romance. Tallahassee and money. Oh, yeah, Twinkies, definitely. Or Tallahassee and Bill Murray. Yes, or Bill Murray and the audience. Right. What is the name of the Wes Craven film featuring voodoo zombies? Is it A, Deadly Friend, B, The Serpent and the Rainbow, C, Voodoo Man, D, I Walked with a Zombie? It's not Serpent and the Rainbow. I'm going to go with Voodoo Man. Ah, man, I'm just I'm just guessing. I have no idea, but I guess I will say um, Deadly Friend. I think the last one I watched with a zombie, is that it? That was D, yes. I'm going to go with The Serpent and the Rainbow, because I like that title. It is, in fact, the Serpent and the Rainbow. What? Oh, my God. Wes Craven did that? Yep. And it has Bill Pullman in it. And it has just that that most if you're a man, you cringe during it. I had no idea. I had no idea that was Wes Craven. Oh, my gosh. And then, uh, all right. I have my final question, which isn't even remotely fair, but I'm asking it anyway. So. All right, what cult classic zombie film featured all of an actor's dialogue completely dubbed over by Bruce Campbell? Is it A, Reanimator, B, Frankenhooker, C, Night of the Creeps, or D, The Dead Next Door? I want it so bad to be Frankenhooker. That has been coming up on my Prime suggestions for like three months. Oh man, uh, we've talked about this before, and now I'm like, uh, I'm gonna say Reanimator, but it might be Night of the Creeps. I don't remember. Yeah, I have no idea, honestly. Say Reanimator. Why not? I'll just say D, the Dead Next Door, because no one said that yet. It is, in fact, the Dead Next Door. Yeah. What? Oh. Well, I just hurt my brain even more doing that. <laughs> coming in clutch alright everybody ready to hear how the scores rounded out on our trivia game within the episode what do we win if we win do we get something I said my respect oh my god <laughs> I at least need bragging rights and your respect like and like a t-shirt or something come on I can do a t-shirt okay fair alright here we go in last place is Brianna with five points. 
Oh, come on. Do I get... I should get a <laughs> consolation prize for trying. You get a fist bump and a crisp high five. Oh, God. Cheapskate. <laughs> <laughs> All right. There is a tie for second place. Uh, with seven points, we have Mitz and Joe. All right. Nice. I respect tie. that. Well done. Mitz really came in clutch there at the end, honestly. Those last two, that was, that was crucial. And that means our winner is Matt with 10 points. Woo! Oh, yeah. But really, it's you, the audience, who are the winners. Exactly. And I applaud you guys being game, even though some of my questions weren't even remotely fair like that last one. All right, let's talk a little bit here to kind of round things out. Uh, just the legacy in general of Night of the Living Dead. And I wanted to see how you guys feel like, do you feel like Night of the Living Dead is important to the horror genre? And if so, why do you feel like it's important? It is important because this is the first, like, I don't know, indie film that I saw that had to do with zombies. And it's always a good watch it's very quotable still even today and some of the images are iconic so yes absolutely it is important to the horror genre yeah i think absolutely it um, it's important i think it uh, redefined zombies redefined the zombie genre and it's uh, had a huge impact on horror in general and i think at least also the score was really good I think it's very important to the horror genre, and uh, just as a side note, you know, my brother and I have had the opportunity a couple times now to go out to some of the filming locations for Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead, and sort of seeing how important George Romero was to the local area of Pittsburgh and, and horror, and seeing all the people who are still uh, in love with these movies kind of just bolstered the fact that these really are important that they mean a lot to people and uh and they mean a lot to me too so i think it is definitely very uh important to the horror genre uh yeah of course i think it's definitely important it set a blueprint for this sort of movie and i did not enjoy watching the zombies eat the fake flesh it creeped me out so if it can creep me out in 2023, I am sure that I was terrifying for the people watching it in 68. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And I think it's, I don't know, it's definitely had a huge impact on me. I, I do think it's a very important to the horror genre. Uh, I think it really changed, like, it's, it's one of the few movies that I could say that I think that it really did change my life. Like, seeing this, seeing Dawn of the Dead... Uh, it put me on a whole trajectory here. Like, I wouldn't be doing this right now. I wouldn't have horror as so much a part of my life if it weren't for finding these films. And uh, I, obviously, just looking at the course of how zombie films have become so popular and just ubiquitous within pop culture, and also finding new life as video games picked up on them as being such an easy antagonist, I, I that's one of the ways where they've not only affected film but just other forms of media where 
Yeah. How many how many different zombie games are there now? Like every game has zombies in them now or a zombie mode in them now, you know? And it's it is a little bit dying out from like the fever pitch it was at the late 2000s, early 2010s, but still everybody knows what a zombie is, you know? And everybody like I I feel like everybody often equates them with Romero zombies. You know, it, r- fast zombies are a weird thing and like something you kind of have to twist your head at a little bit. But like, I feel like most people con most people's concept of a zombie is a Romero zombie. Maybe, maybe I'm uh, projecting on that, but it, that's what it feels like at least. Well, if I live to see the apocalypse, I sure hope it's slow zombies, not fast zombies. Cause I will, I will die really quickly if they're fast zombies. I don't run ever at all as a rule well just cardio take, just take the easy Fuck way cardio around. man oh my god i'm old <laughs> i think one of the things too about this movie as much as it sucks that it went into public domain immediately and that means that romero and russo and uh russ streiner and you know hardman that none of them really got as much money out of this as they could if they'd been able to retain that copyright. I think that it also made it as pervasive as it is. Cause like I said, at the beginning of this, like if you have a streaming service, you can watch this and you don't need a streaming service either. You can go on YouTube and you can find a copy of it. And oftentimes what you're going to find on YouTube is a better quality version of the film than what you'll find on streaming services, which is weird as hell. But I think the sheer fact that we're still talking about it today is a lot in thanks to that copyright mishap. Otherwise, it might have been something that disappeared into obscurity. And so I think that that aspect of it is kind of bittersweet, and I'm sure is bittersweet for all the people involved with it, to see how it's still important today, but that also they really don't have any kind of control over it. And then I did want to see, because Mitz already kind of said that it sounds like you feel like it still holds up today in terms of impact when you're watching it. Does everybody else kind of feel the same way? Am I misinterpreting what you have already said, Mitz? I mean, I think it hold- obviously there's a couple goofy moments, for example. I mean, the the zombies are very, very lethargic in this movie to the point of being comical. I think there was a scene where a zombie like slowly chucked a brick or something and I lost it. But there are some things, yeah, I think that do hold up the yeah like the eating of the flesh still got a reaction out of me um yeah so definitely there are parts that hold up one thing that's kind of interesting for me or at least how i felt about it watching it this especially this last time because i was kind of thinking about it a little bit more was like harry's character felt like he was a character from a show in the 40s or 50s or something like that but ben's character felt like he was a character from it could be a modern film i don't know he felt more real to me he didn't feel like kind of the like 40s or 50s um character i guess that felt like almost sitcom like harry did i think that there's something to that um the the thing i would add to that is that Everyone who worked on Night of the Living Dead, particularly as far as the writing side of it, so both Romero and Russo have been very open about the fact that they didn't 
write the character as a black character. They just wrote it as as a character. They didn't necessarily specify what ethnicity. And Dwayne Jones happened to be the best actor out of their group of friends and acquaintances. So they put him in the lead and they were kind of like, well, let's not change anything. We'll just put him at the forefront. And of course, he was a very excellent actor. And then on top of that, too, I guess he even talked to them about the idea, do you want to change anything to address this? And, you know, Romero and them have kind of said, like, you know, we're sitting there as white guys and being like, nah, we're, we're being progressive. We're putting the black guy in the lead. We don't need to change anything about the dialogue. But Dwayne Jones kind of being like, I think that if you're looking at the world as it really is, this needs to be addressed to some degree. And I guess all of that to circle back to the point that I agree with that you're making is that I think that he brought a gravitas to it and just a whole feel to it that still is kind of relevant in today's world of him trying to, you know, fight for being taken seriously. And uh, Harry just feels anachronistic, but at the same time, you could meet someone like that in the grocery store today as well. And which I think is part of what makes all of it feel all the more relevant today is that, you have this black man who's just fighting to be listened to, to be taken seriously amongst these white people that aren't giving him the respect that he deserves. And I think that that part of the message of this film is something that helps it to continue to endure. Yeah. I, I don't really have much to add to that because I think it, it sums it up very well. Uh, yeah. It, I think he, he does a great job and I think that's part of, why it's such a good movie basically romero was uh, ahead of his time and sadly nobody caught on to that because if we look it's 2023 let's look at our movies our horror movies from the past 55 years there are very few horror movies with a lead of color even now so i applaud romero for that but obviously we have a ways to go there yeah absolutely the only thing that I think doesn't hold up in the film is the way that the women are portrayed. Uh, yeah. But it's pretty... Like like you said, um, Ben Ben's character is the uh, very obviously the best actor, the most dimensional actor on screen there. Everybody else is kind of just like a caricature. Um, uh, the the guy and his girlfriend almost sound like they're reading off cue cards. So <laughs> he really just steals the show. Ben does. Uh, and then Barbara's character, I think maybe she does what she could with what she was given, but, uh, but yeah, it's not a very feminist portrayal. I don't think. No, it's it's definitely something that Romero spent the rest of the Dead series trying to make up for as his female characters within the films get progressively more complex, more interesting, and stronger. One thing that was kind of interesting to me watching through this, and like I kind of was talking about it with like Harry uh, and just how he felt, but like I feel like that maybe translates to some of the other characters or all almost all the other characters is just like he feels like he's almost out of like like Andy Griffin or uh Perry Mason or something like that like that's the sort of like style of his acting that's the style of their his character and then you get Ben coming into the picture and 
like he's acting more real and it's sort of like i don't know you get the sort of the white people who whose view of reality isn't maybe actually what reality is and i don't know i feel like that's kind of an interesting commentary whether it was meant or not uh and uh, with barbara you get kind of her being kind of um I'm still, uh, she just kind of, the way she is, like the way she's reacting to things is like overdramatic and like she uh, just can't handle it. Uh, It feels like that's more maybe like an older style of like having a character over, overreact to things in order to tell the audience how they need to feel about things. Um, So I don't know. It's not, it's not fair to have like, a woman have to say that stuff, I guess, but I don't know. Just it's interesting things, I guess I was thinking about. All right. And I have just kind of one final question before we close out, which is uh, ultimately, did you, did you like Night of the Living Dead? Would you recommend it? What's your, your quick, like your quick couple sentence review? I did like it. It's what the kids today would call camp and I would watch it again. Yeah, I think uh, Brianna described it as five out of five brains or something like that. But uh, I would agree with that. It's very good, uh, especially, you know, just because of how how much it defined the genre moving forward. So very good movie. Yeah, I think it's where it all began and it's going to really appeal to any zombie fan. Uh, It's definitely like a popcorn and a Friday night kind of movie at this point, I think. It's maybe not necessarily going to scare the pants off of anybody. Horror, but it's quintessential zombie viewing. I think that this film is something that I would recommend to someone if they're already a horror fan. I don't know that folks who aren't horror fans would truly appreciate it, Um, but definitely ahead of its time. Definitely a fun little romp. And this is, to me, this is like the perfect movie to project on a perfectly blank wall during a Halloween party, just like in a loop. It's perfect. It's just, it's just perfect. Yeah, it's, it's a personal favorite of mine. I has a special place in my heart. I've said it before, but like Romero, George Romero is the only celebrity whose passing I ever cried about. And, uh, just really he and these movies have just meant so much to me and had such a big impact on me. And so this is where it all starts. And I, like I said, it's bittersweet that it is available wherever you want to see it. So if you want to see it, there's, there's no excuse not to, because you can always find it. And I think that part of it's something that's great. And it's going to keep people watching it every spooky season, if not more than that every year for who knows how long. It'll outlive us all. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us on our first episode of season three of Is It Horror? If you enjoyed our classics episode here, uh, let us know and we can do more of these. This is the first movie as well at the beginning of our second annual Is It Horror marathon. So you can follow along on our Instagram, which is Is It Horror Pod on Instagram, and uh, we'll basically tell you every day what the movie is to watch and each week there is a specific theme this first week is classics and uh, the next episode that we're going to release episode two is going to be covering Edgar Wright's The World's End and that'll be during our sci-fi week and uh, we also have a bonus episode coming 
Before that, we're, we're going to be reviewing a sequel to a tried and true and iconic horror franchise. So you can pay attention for that. And uh, we'll have that here sometime between now and when the World's End episode comes out. So just uh, yep, keep following us on social media and you'll see when all those things are happening. And thanks for supporting us. And if you can recommend us to friends or rate us on your various podcast service that you're listening to us on, that'll always help us to continue doing this and get ourselves out there. So thanks for joining us and we'll see you soon. I have been Steve. And I've been Brianna. I'm Joe. Oh, hey, Joe. I'm Matt. (laughs) And I am Mitz. And we're coming to get you, listener. Johnny has the keys. Johnny has the key lime pie. (laughs) Check our Insta for the uh, Johnny has the key lime pie recipe. (laughs) Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us at Is It Horror? We post new episodes every other Friday. To stay up to date on all things Is It Horror, follow us on Instagram or X at Is It Horror Pod or email us at Is It Horror Podcast at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show and you'd like to help support us, you can recommend us to a friend, follow and rate us on your podcast app of choice, or you can check out our store on Redbubble. In the meantime, stay safe and keep asking yourself Is It Horror?